Hi everybody, welcome to our speciality episode talking about the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science meeting uh, this year, so the SIPS conference. Um, As always, I'm joined by Amy Auburn. Hello. And Sophia Cluvel. Hi. Excellent. Um, So to start off with, the SIPS conference is probably not like any conference you'll see within psychology. Um, it's described as an unconference, very different format. So we'll briefly talk about that and get into the interviews that we uh, that we had during the meeting. Yeah. So just as a note, I wasn't there. <laughs> so the interviews um, are just Sam and Sophia because I decided to take a holiday <laughs> during that time, which I deeply regret because SIP sounded like an amazing, amazing, amazing time. So, yeah, I'll talk a bit less during this podcast as well, which might be a positive. Um, <laughs> and let you let you guys explain what made the, made the conference so, so cool, I guess. Awesome. Um, so I guess the first thing is that the, the conference has quite a dynamic format. So we've got sessions that are sort of fixed, similar to other conferences. Um, however, most of it is based on the sort of ideas and the concepts that people are going to be uh, coming up with and working on at the conference itself. Um, so there were four four session types, uh, lightning talks, workshops, unconferences, and hackathons. Um, Sophia, could you take workshops and lightning talks? I do think we should start with the... Um, start with the less, weirdest one Yeah, the, weird, the weirder ones, so hackathons okay. and unconference sessions. Probably. So, so a hackathon would be the most active... I would say it would be the one where you've you've already got a an idea and you want to flesh that out into something a bit more a bit more concrete. So, um, for example, we set up one to try and come up with a a framework for evaluating the teaching of open and reproducible science practices. Um, so, being able to look at a a particular course and I guess grade it in some way on on whether they're teaching data sharing and reproducible um, analytic pipe pipelines uh, and things like that. So that was a very, we started off with quite a solid idea and we wanted to flesh that out into a more concrete framework to to eventually turn it into something. Um, so it was like a hackathon kind of building something. It's it's taking an idea and putting it into practice, is that? Yeah, a, l- a little bit more you, I guess the ideal is that you have an output that comes mm. out of it. So this would be in contrast to um, an unconference, which would be a little bit more of an idea generation kind of session, or maybe you're you're talking about something to develop the idea. Yeah, I guess sort of like unconference sessions are the precursor of hackathons. Yeah, and you so. had quite a good experience with unconferences as well. Oh yeah, I, like, I, I went to quite a few unconference sessions that were really fun. Um, I think the first one I went to was the, the one on um, scientific self-correction. Um, no, actually, no, I'm not, that might actually have been a hackathon. No, I think that was a hackathon, but it's, the, that one actually started out as an on-conference session at last year's SIPS, and then they made, made it into a hackathon this year. Awesome. So it's, it sounds quite cool because it's really about just improving psychological science and the whole conference is putting together different things like talks and workshops that we kind of know exist and then you have hackathons and unconference sessions um which i'm still trying to wrap my head around but it looks like you know it's really just a hands-on let's all get together and just try to try to improve things kind of session 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And, right, so it, it wasn't just hands-on, it was also like everyone hands-on kind of thing. Yeah. So um, I had the experience that the, the hierarchy was super flat. Like there was, there was no big difference between professors uh, who'd been in the field for ages and um, undergrad students even, I think. Um, so it felt like everyone was being taken seriously to like the same extent. Yeah. And everyone had something to bring to the discussion or to the work that people were doing together. And this is probably the first collection of people I've ever been in where you don't have to have the discussion about what is the problem. Mm. So all the things that we talk about quite regularly and kind of form this podcast to a large extent are things that you don't even have to talk about. You don't have to sort of describe to someone what the problem is and that's why we have this meeting in the first place. Everybody's kind of coming from the vantage point of we want to improve things and here's ways that we can do that. So you don't have to try and sort of say, by the way, there is a crisis. Yes, but while, of course, there's sort of that basic understanding of the general problem, yeah. um, I think something that's important to point out is that people still disagreed. Yeah. Because I was, I was actually quite, like, that was the, I mean, so I'd been looking forward to SIPs for months. Um, but the one thing that I was a bit worried about was whether everyone was just going to agree and sort of pat each other on the back and go, yay, <laughs> we'll just do something. But, you know, we all agree. But that wasn't the case. I thought it was really fun to see that people um, disagreed on stuff as well. And uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's important because quite often the sort of the open science movement can just be seen as like a homogenous block of people that are just all kind of blowhards about wanting something to happen and change, whereas actually everybody disagrees on everything or maybe not disagrees but has a different vantage point to kind of bring bring something into the equation which is really nice so you did you just take a microphone around and and talk to people you found interesting um we tried but the microphone didn't function very well so we were operating on phones um so hashtag millennial Um, so I guess we're also to... carrying around gifs with us, just like it's gifs, it's gifs, gif, gif. <laughs> Can somebody please uh, correct Sophia? <laughs> Is this our like active example of where disagreement, like open, open science, science people don't agree? <laughs> <laughs> there are more substantial points than whether it's gif or gif, even though that is important. Well, anyway. <laughs> so this this podcast is all about presenting some snippets of kind of the best recordings you made during that week. Yeah, so we caught up with um, primarily um, people that were involved in delivering workshops or hackathons um, in order to kind of get a picture of what they were trying to achieve, what they were trying to either teach people or trying to develop within those sessions. Um, I thought it was really cool. It was really nice to just talk to all the people that you sort of follow on Twitter and talk to. And that was another really nice thing about this conference. I genuinely wanted to meet everybody there. Yeah, I mean, we sort of got to start our sips by meeting the the goats, (laughs) which was quite fun. Uh, Well, should we then just kind of dive in and and have a listen? Let's dive in. The first clip we'll listen to is Sam and Sophia, who sat down with Elizabeth Page-Gould and Michael Inslicht, both from the University of Toronto. They led a hackathon about finding open science jobs, which is naturally of importance to many early career researchers. One of the things the hackathon produced 
were some talking points that would allow you to counter common criticisms that you would probably face in things like job interviews. I think that one was, in a way, I think the, the, the idea behind that one was, um, to some extent, we're in the business of persuading people. Right? If we want to create open science jobs, we have to, it's not enough that there's one faculty or even two faculty or students um, in a department. It needs to be, there needs to be a, at some level a critical mass and then there's a, a, you know, a, a, a changing point. Mm-hmm. Um, so to some extent, if there are any allies in departments who are you know, open science kind of advocates, um, we have to arm them with talking points, things like, like, like a politician would have. Um, so if someone is uh, kind of saying, well, this is all rubbish or this is, you know, I think this, then you can say, well, look, we you know, thought of uh, um, you know, a number of different objections, that standard objections that people might have, and then responses that one could you know, bring to that objection. And hopefully, over time, uh, people will be more persuaded and convinced uh, of the benefits. But they also were working on a way to motivate departments to become more open science friendly, possibly by controversial means. actually another one of our projects that Mickey uh, was involved in this subgroup, but was actually on coming up with ways to, or criteria and categories along which to classify the practices that occur in different departments so that you can start to um, identify those places that, you know, if you were applying there, you would talk up your open science values, or maybe you just want to cast a wide net and get as many offers as possible and hopefully get to choose. So maybe you want to dampen that open science signal when you're applying to certain uh, departments. So maybe you could talk more yeah. about what you guys actually talked about. Yeah, so um, I actually think this is kind of controversial. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there'll be pushback. Uh, so we're, I think, taking baby steps with this. Um, but the idea was, and I don't want to use the word rank, um, but maybe rate is a better word. Um, we want to have a, a mechanism by which we could rate departments on this criteria of open science. Um, and just, you know, and I know, I, the reason I said there'll be pushback is because, um, well, <laughs> this is a contentious issue. I, you know, our, our, I've heard uh, it described as, like what we're going through right now is a civil war, like, you know, in terms of being factions and people not, you know, in this, you know, in this meeting, we're all, we all have shared, shared values, but we are in a bubble. Um, yeah. And I think there's a much bigger bubble uh, that is, mm-hmm. opposes some of these things. And I think that's mostly because, um, it's unfortunate, but uh, it makes sense, a lot of these values, I think, align uh, with seniority. So if you've been rewarded by a system, it's going to be feel really, really, you're going to become really, really defensive when you're told uh, that all these practices that you grew up with and knew about and made you even famous uh, are rubbish. Right. So yeah. anyway, so we wanted some way of just, you know, to what extent are departments friendly to this? Are they pro open science? Um, so one of the things we did was we, we came up with criteria uh, that we could evaluate these things. Um, and it's hard. It's really tricky uh, to like find to evaluate them from outside. Yeah. Oh, so well, mm. well, one thing we came up with was actually we had a bunch of ideas, but I think the one we worked on the most was actually uh, creating a really short and easy to complete uh, survey or questionnaire that uh, either a department chair, I think we decided not to go with the department chair, but just kind of send it out to the faculty or students mm-hmm. to find out what you know what their views are of the practices. And, and, and in the questionnaire, we were very it was very important to divide it up into actual behaviors. So mm-hmm. have you had an open science seminar? 
Have you, um, uh, have, you know, have you pre-registered a study? Uh, these, you know, objective things that you can measure. Yeah. Um, but then I think equally important, maybe even more important, is the like the subjective perception of the climate of the department. And because you know some departments might actually have all those check boxes, all those things that they do, but their advisors still tell them not to do these things, or they're scared to do, you know, to, to like, their data don't reveal what they wanted, and they're scared to go to their advisors, because their advisors might say, hey, analyze the data this way, that way, and yeah. not, you know, not talk about, you know, this being exploratory. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, we came up with a way, um, an initial way, to like, at least assess uh, the open science cred of a department. But the idea here, here is that we want applicants to know about their departments, um, but I think secretly, um, it's not so secret sometimes to talk to you about here. Um, right. Um, is uh, universities like rankings. Uh, they might be resistant at first, but they like rankings. And if, uh, um, you know, a department that's very, very famous, uh, for example, um, is there a single faculty member from Harvard at this meeting? No, I think Nick Brown. No, did Nick Brown point out? Someone pointed something like this out, yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Right, so you know, I think widely considered, uh, I know you're from Oxford, maybe this is not something I should say, but widely considered the best or one of the best universities in the world, uh, with their psych departments always, ra- always ranked in the top whatever, five, ten. Um, and uh, it seems like, at least as a perception, that's a, it's antagonistic. Yeah. I suspect if there's a ranking that ends up, you know, if this is like time, that Harvard eventually will want to be, hey, we, we also, if, if people are evaluating our department, on this, funders are evaluating our department on yeah. this, we want to get on this train. But most importantly, Liz gave some really important input about the bigger picture we should never lose as early career researchers. She began by talking about the process of writing a research statement. Well, that's it. I feel that you don't also time this back into advice for writing, say, a research statement. I mean, Unless your research is uh, meta science or open science, best practices methodology, then your opening few sentences are going to be about the research question that drives you. And therefore, you're communicating that this piece of knowledge is something that I want to contribute to humanity. And that's a very important value of mine personally, what I care about contributing to humanity. That's where I feel my purpose is. It's not necessarily an open science, but it's because I care so much about understanding the nature of how we interact with one another and can collaborate so that we can perpetuate our species as long as possible. I need to do that in a rigorous way. I want my work to matter 100 years later. I I want to die and have my work keep living. And I can't do or that. Or just be interpretable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, or or, yeah, or, or yeah, die yeah, too. Yeah, because it, yes, it, it, might, it might be disproven or something. But they, exactly. Yeah. Like, it can but die it as be, well. Yeah. But it would therefore be, like, whatever killed it, right? Yes. It, it stepped on top of it and went higher. And that's I what I want to do. Yeah, and that's okay with me. Because I would still have been a cog in the wheel that turned the next yes. cog. But I won't be. If it was all, if it was all p-hacked, right? Yeah. I talked with Kristen Lane and Heather Yuri about the workshop they gave on how to teach reproducible research. Uh, we start by talking about my own experiences starting to learn about open and reproducible research. There's the recency effect for me of only maybe two years ago before I really started to dive into all of this, and it was still that kind of 
don't know, maybe Fairyland, where mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. you, you've not quite broken into realizing that things need to improve to to actually be fully critical of everything, right? You can't just read a paper and assume that yes, like th- this is true. That's fine. We can yeah. we'll build on that study. You actually then get a lot more critical yeah, about right. it, and um, and I think that's actually yeah. especially true. What you just said at the, for me, I mean, I think it's probably true when you're teaching at the graduate and undergraduate level, but particularly at the undergraduate level, I think I find myself um, having to remind them that just because, you know, that they're reading a published article, and I think the tendency is to think, well, it's peer-reviewed and it's published. Like, who am I to come at this thing? And Yeah, it's fact, and who am I to come to this and offer any sort of critical thoughts about it? And I think just planting the seed or really sort of encouraging the thought that actually you have a mind, you have the tools, you've learned um, some of the factors that you should be considering when you read published literature, and it is okay to come to the conclusion that just because it's published that it's in fact flawed in ways that may in fact be fundamental. And you might have happened upon that, and you are capable of doing so. We're not flawed, but still not right. Yes. Then we focus more on the workshop, and I ask them if there's any particular outcomes that really stood out for them. Yeah, so one of the things that I think was really... Well, there were lots of useful things, so by identifying one thing, I certainly don't want to diminish the other things, but one of the things that stood out to me was uh, the effort to develop what will become a database so that we, uh, that teachers, instructors can turn to that and say, you know, okay, here's some studies that we know have not replicated and maybe here are some alternative studies that sort of address this, basically to help instructors um, to make sure that we're not simply proffering, you know, continuing to proliferate information that may reflect old knowledge, right? Um, yeah. And so I thought that was uh, one thing that emerged that I thought was interesting. Yeah, I guess that kind of moving away from what is the standard, this is just a true thing, mm-hmm. like this is a trope right. that mm-hmm. just gets thrown out, like the pen in the mouth study and things yes. like that, where you, you sort of know that it's not right, but That's right. But if it you're gets taught as facts. Exactly, you know? and I think if you're an instructor too, there's we have to face the reality that we're human, Yeah. and that we have... Uh, we don't have unlimited amounts of time and so to have a database like that where you could pull it open and very easily find uh, example studies where you just point you to them without you having to go look and see what's the information what do we what do we know about this yeah um, I think it makes it easier ultimately to to then pull that stuff into your class yeah and I think this a few conversations I've had is very much it's not about necessarily trying to change everybody's minds so much as it is just trying to make things easier yeah so it's not that you have to suddenly change your whole course it's just to like shift the focus to something that is a bit more robust yeah. or or use use these studies that we know don't replicate as a learning tool for yes. that reason rather yes. than just as a this is this is research and we can't argue against yeah. it. Yes, right. We also talked to Jessica Flake and Eike Fried, who are running a workshop called Measurement Measurement, about why we need to think about questionable measurement practices, practices that aren't strictly malpractice, but could be highly problematic. Could you give a couple of examples of questionable measurement practices, just to be super clear for anyone that doesn't click? Um, so we kind of defined questionable measurement practices ourselves and in the workshop we said this is a starting definition we're open to changing it somewhat and Jessica mentioned that it's about 
transparency, justification, and decisions. So we want people to be transparent in saying what they did exactly. We want people to justify their decisions in the best case in a pre-registration. And um, we want people to be aware that they make a ton of decisions when you set out an empirical study and when you try to measure depression or motivation or emotion or aggression. And uh, in the workshop, we went through 12, 15, 20 examples of um, situations where people usually don't think about making a certain decision, but they did make a decision. So in a tutorial kind of style, uh, we talked about um, measurement use, we talked about uh, measurement uh, selection and measurement modification. So these are the three big cornerstones that we talked about in the workshop. Selection would, for example, be uh, in my field, there are 280 depression scales. These scales differ from each other quite considerably in symptom content, but people generally pretend they're kind of the same thing, and they don't tell you why they selected a specific scale, and they're also not always very transparent in the selection process, but choosing one scale over the other might lead to significant results or not. Right? So that's a selection part, for example. Yeah. And, um, and it's questionable if we don't know why they made the decision. So questionable isn't necessarily fraud or p-hacking, it's just you don't know because it's questionable. You know, you're reading the you're reading the description of the measures and the depression study, and you're like, well, why do they use that measure over that measure? Or this measure doesn't really seem, or why do they use a different measure in study two? Well, that's questionable. If maybe they were p-hacking and just reporting the measures that were significant, that's an example. Or maybe they had a, a strong reason, some mm -hmm. justification for changing the scales or selecting them. But if you don't report that and you're not transparent, we say it's questionable. Right, the way pe pe uh, people, sorry, papers are written up at the moment, maybe clinical trial papers, for example, they have multiple scales. It's kind of unclear what's the primary outcome, what's the secondary outcome. Some results are buried in the supplementary materials, often those that are not significant. Um, doesn't need to be a bad paper or bad science, but. I don't trust the results in the sense I would trust the results if people would have been more uh, rigorous and more open and transparent and had justified their decisions in the best case a priori. So that's a selection example. A use would be um, a scale in psychology often needs to be summarized in some way. You have multiple items, you tend to measure something. Do you use one scale, do you use two subscales, or do you make up five subscales on the fly? Do you summarize your scale using a PCA, using a factor analysis, do you use the mean score, do you use the sum score? There are all these degrees of freedom, all these decisions you make that people don't really think about as a decision. Maybe they just use a CFA because they always do that. But we don't know that, right? That that's just their usual practice. So yeah. we, we want to encourage people to think about that before, in the best case, before they collect their data and be transparent about how they do that because PCA versus CFA versus some score can lead to dramatically different outcomes in certain situations. You can measurement hack your way yeah. into significant results that way. So it kind of strikes me that there's a potentially a huge crossover with pre-registrations in that you're not necessarily saying that we're trying to prevent, say, fraud so much as you're trying to ensure that that kind of garden of forking paths is as sparse as possible and yeah, exactly. transparently describe what's what's going on. Yeah, I see it as having like two consequences. So one consequence is that if you don't justify and you're not transparent, you could knowingly or unknowingly p-hack. Uh, yeah. But another consequence is like across studies, there isn't any continuity. 
So, you know, Ico in his lab uses this depression scale where they drop a few items for unknown reasons. Maybe they don't like the items. Maybe those items are performing poorly by some psychometric criteria. Maybe those items, when dropped, created a new subscale that was significant. You don't know. But then in my lab, I'm like, well, I don't really like, you know, so I use the same scale, but I drop different items. And this goes on and on. And across studies, how do we accumulate knowledge if it seems like what we're measuring is always shifting? And that sounds, sometimes I think it's, you're tempted to think that that sounds obvious, but I've seen this happen like especially reading JPSP papers where there are multiple studies, there might be five or six studies, and the measure of the primary variables of interest is shifting across studies in the same paper. It might be items are dropped, items are added, it's a slightly different scale, but it's supposed to be measuring the same thing. How do we have continuity under that? Even if you're not p-hacking, you're making it really difficult to accumulate knowledge, and you're also making it difficult to interpret a failed Effect. Is it because the measurement's different? Is it because the theory isn't working? Like, we just don't know. And I, I don't mm-hmm. think people talk about that a lot. The measurement's shifting constantly. How can we interpret all the results? And people gloss over that when they read papers. People don't pay attention to the method section very much. Even reviewers might not. I think you mentioned you had a second coder who actually works in the field of social psychology go over some of the um, papers that you coded just for interrate reliability mm-hmm. and he said that he was appalled by some of the papers and said how did this ever get published wow. uh, um, it's yeah people like Cronbus alpha of 0.2 or something where people just for some reason haven't looked at it or don't pay attention and that ties into the title of our workshop that you asked before we started recording the title was how the uh, these bad measurement practices threaten cumulative psychological science that's the point we want to accumulate knowledge as Jessica just said and that becomes difficult when people drop items or there's nothing wrong sorry there's nothing wrong with dropping items there's nothing wrong with modifying scales we just want you to justify it tell us why and be transparent about it we sat down with Michelle Knighton Nick Brown and James Heathers who led a workshop on checking yourself statistically they talked about what happened in their workshop and gave some great advice for good research in general and for ECR specifically we wanted to ask you guys about the, the workshop you're doing, partly because we, could, well, it was brilliant, we couldn't obviously. be there and Nick got really offended. Um, That's just his face. Yeah, my wife said, how did it go? And I go, I think it went pretty well, but I'm really not the person to ask. So, <laughs> so, so maybe a good good place to start would be um, a quick explanation of stat check, grim and sprite. Can for, we, the, for those that are the un- uninitiated. One sentence each, you know. <laughs> oh, I reckon about 90 seconds each. Michelle, yeah. you're the sober one, you go. You're a sober one, I hope so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so Stat Check is... <laughs> <laughs> Smart off. Just, just the assumption that James started drinking before everyone else. I thought he said that. I maybe misinterpreted it, and it seemed relevant. Anyway, uh, Stat Check is pretty simple to explain. It's a, a spell checker for statistics that automatically extracts uh, null hypothesis significance tests from papers and recalculates p-values. That's it. And just flags if there's a there's difference between an inconsistency and a gross inconsistency. Yeah, so right? it, it flags it. Uh, you can re- recalculate p-values based on reported test statistic and degrees of freedom. Um, if the recalculated p-value doesn't match the reported one, it's flagged as an inconsistency. If the reported p-value is significant and the uh, recalculated one is not, or vice versa, it's flagged as a gross inconsistency. Awesome. Looking easy. Who wants to take Grim? Me! <laughs> no, Nick's doing that. Uh, Grimm is a bit of um, fifth grade arithmetic. 
uh, where you examine whether means and in a more advanced version uh, standard deviations uh, as reported and rounded are possible given the sample size and the known characteristics uh, of the data typically integers. Uh, so for example uh, if you ask if you, if you ask five people how many children they have and, and the reported mean is 1.2 then that's consistent because that means there's a total of six children. If the reported mean is 1.3 uh, then there's a problem there because it would imply that there's a total of 6.5 children. Uh, and it turns out, well, that's easy to see yourself, but it turns out that for any uh, sample size, there's a range, uh, a pattern of numbers that are consistent and a pattern of numbers that are inconsistent. And we've used this uh, in reading quite a large number of psychological articles. And we found that quite a lot of them had one or more uh, means that were not consistent with the reported sample size. And in some cases, or quite a lot of cases, this was just due to somebody being excluded in one particular case. Uh, but in other cases, it was due to there being quite severe problems with the data um, that had led to incorrectly reported means. So it's an extremely trivial um, mathematically, uh, but it's, uh, it's quite a lot of work to implement because you, unlike StatCheck, which just parses the, the, the article, you have to f find where the sample size is, uh, work out which condition it applies to, find which mean is reported in the text. And a couple of people said, oh, this should be easy to automate. And yeah, they haven't got their PhD in artificial intelligence yet. Presumably for your own paper, it should be very easy to not automate, but to implement right before you submit as well. You know, you know the paper. It, it isn't even, out, so no, you, it, even look, you should always check your own paper with StatCheck, but checking your own with Grimm really isn't the point because Grimm says whether the mean is possible given the other numbers you've put in, but it, it, you, don't, you don't have a typo in the mean very often. Uh, mm. So it, okay. it actually is not something that you need to apply to your own papers because it doesn't get you much of a benefit. Okay. Having someone else look at it might be, but it's it. The, there are very, very few. Uh, you, you should have reported better. So the the oh, kind of errors it detects are not the kind of errors that you're just going to quickly fix like that because it meant that you didn't do it right. So it, it, it's it, it's not really the same argument. It's, it's okay. difficult to explain, but it's not the same argument. Sprite is a method for reconstructing plausible distributions from summary statistics. If you take a mean, a standard deviation, a range, and a sample size, and you assort where all the numbers can go very, very fast, it makes you a distribution that could be the data that underlies the summary statistics that you put in. If you do it lots, you can get a great deal of distributions, and in some cases, approximate what the data might have looked like. If the data is really weird, a lot of the time you can probably find what it does look like. And in situations like that, you uh, find the weird data and then you call the author up and you yell at him. Well, <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't complicated. That was reasonably straightforward. I, I would say it depends. Having having reconstructed what the data set looks like, you then decide if that looks plausible for your question. So if you have a, a one to seven scale and uh, the, the reconstruction shows that there were a lot of threes and fours, uh, if you're asking people whether they prefer this uh, this, this tech cola that you tested to this other cola that you tested, that might be reasonable. If you're asking them to evaluate the performance of Donald Trump as president, you'd expect a lot more ones and sevens, and you wouldn't expect too many threes and fours. So uh, it, it needs to be interpreted in the context of what is a reasonable distribution for these data. Uh, 
But if yeah, if if uh... I was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so I guess the workshop wasn't only about telling people about these these tools that right. You you actually had people pull in some papers and play with them, right? Yeah, always good fun. So was there anything fun that came out of that? Yeah, we found something that's very difficult to explain, and I had a quiet look at it after we did the sort of live demonstration of what might or might not happen, and it still looks strange. Something's very iffy. Okay. With a, a figure from a paper by an author who I won't mention, um, in a journal which I won't mention, but out there somewhere there is one bad paper. You all need to know this. Um, I'm not quite sure that helps. Yeah, um... You start off, the process is something like this. Pull out, pull out all the numbers in context. Um, write them down. If they're, if they're able to be investigated with Grimm, or they're able to be back calculated, which is essentially what StackCheck does, but in a much cooler way, and you should all use it because it's great. Then, after you've done that, you can say, what might this look like? And that was Sprite. So... This paper failed its grim test at the start. We didn't actually look at the test statistics because we, we didn't do it live, did we? You mean that we didn't do the, the stat check, check yeah. on the paper? Yeah. No, we, we actually, I have no idea which paper this is about. So hey. he sat in the back and he just read out the, the, the means and the standard deviations. We should have done it. I wonder what lies beneath. So what else did you do in the workshop then? Or did you just then spend the entire time checking papers? Uh, we, oh, we just did that. We talked about how it works, a little bit about ethics and what the process is of kind of thumping these things around and what it means. Um, how you shouldn't be overconfident. How you should, um, in general, assume that you're the one that's made the mistake until yeah. you find large rashes of mistakes. And how to employ caution when you feel like you have uncovered a problem that is, in fact, a problem. Mm. Well, do you want to share some of those highlights uh, with well, people who didn't make it? A lot of people. You don't have to give me that look. You're lucky <laughs> this isn't on video. Um, that's, look, a lot of that's self-evident in, um, in what it says, but the one... the. The central theme running through all of that that summarizes easily is there is a degree of prudence that is required at all points. Papers are very difficult to turn into smaller subunits of information and put them all in order and make it perfect. A lot of the time you forget that there was a subcondition or there were three individual numbers that made a sub-mean, which eventually became part of the grand mean, which you then forgot to pay attention to because that was on page three and the results are on page seven, etc., etc. It can be very difficult to put numbers in order sufficient that you can check them and be certain you've found what you've found. So always, always assume it's you until you find a lot of it, if you're talking about error detection, certainly. Pretty good rule of thumb. I think something else we said was... Um, if you were writing the politically correct version, it, it would sort of say, if you have any doubt, do not hesitate to contact the corresponding author. And I would say, uh, hesitate. hesitate strongly <laughs> contacting the corresponding author um, for various reasons. But most most obviously, once you have once you have contacted them, you can't uncontact them. And do you think this changes? So I think we're trying to have quite a focus on early career researchers, especially. Do you think this is quite career stage dependent as well as to how involved you can get in raising these kind of uh, issues? I think that's a question of people's perception. Um, in practice, the only people raising these things are going to be early career researchers because other people don't do it. 
and that just that, that it would be great okay. it would be great if tenured professors were going hmm, this tenured professor here appears to be have something very dodgy that never happens so it's only going to be early career researchers anyway or, or you know or grad students uh, and, and, and postdocs pretty much most of the time that's just mm. the way it is that's, that's just part of the evil of the world uh, so it's more a question of to what extent you decide that you're going to push your head over the top of the parapet um, in, in the interests of science. Um, uh, but yeah, one, one of the problems is you are probably going to be up against somebody senior to yeah. you. That's so do you think it's maybe necessary to have something more organized and official? Opinions differ on this among the people doing it. I, I think as soon as you're part of a system, you become part of the systems. Um, you have to have your kind of rules. You have to have your due process. I think if it's just coming from an individual member of the public, um, then n there are no expectations. I think once you start becoming kind of um, you know, do dodgy tester ink, uh, you know, you've got to have a mission statement. You've got to have a website. We are dodgy tester ink. We look for stuff that's going on, and then you then you become the police. And you know, the police have limitations on what they can do. So I think there's a need for institutions that investigate this, but in practice they tend to be extremely toothless. So uh, yeah. It's not the bodily capacity that I think they're lacking, but never mind, toothless will do. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would like to see... I would like people collectively to have access to somebody that could do that on a formal level. Someone that you could in any capacity actually go to and say, look at this thing. Yeah. Thanks for talking to us, everyone. Um, That's perfectly okay. We're all very fond of you and your burgeoning podcast. We wish you every success. You're a bit weird, both of you, but I think you'll do well. <laughs> At 9am on Sunday morning, Sophia and I met with Sanjay Stravastava, Alexa Tullet, and Samin Vizier from the Black Goat podcast. Sorry for the horrible audio quality, but we hope you enjoy their fantastic advice anyway. So do you maybe see registered reports as, I guess, an easy in because it's really, it's easy to appeal to the incentives that you will get a paper out of this? Right. Is that kind of part of the rationale? Yeah, or? I think that's what my thinking is that, like, you don't have to totally, like, change your priorities and, yeah, you can, you can still be motivated to get publications, but I think it's easy to sell, right? Like, rather than you know, making your results appeal to an editor, you can make your study appeal to an editor and still, you know, get, and you can still publish in journals that everybody recognizes as very can prestigious. Can you though? Psych Science? Psych Science only does registered reports for application studies. Okay. You know, I, yeah, I, I think if you can sell your advisor on registered reports, it's great. I've heard Chris Chambers say that he, there are some like senior people who push back pretty hard on registered reports, and and it would be interesting to hear directly from him kind of more about that. It would kind of from what he's he's said on Twitter about it that people are. They sort of like being able to have super clean, like it's not a principled response. It's no. basically like yeah, they so don't I, want to dilute their brand. Like our lab has these clean results. They're always supporting our pet theory, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Well, it's I a don't whole know, stifling creativity thing. Yeah. I think. 
But I, I, I think the, I think if you can commit, I think there are a lot of people who would be open to that. Um, but I, I think also just in terms of actually, like if you're a grad student trying to figure out sort of, I mean, one question was just like connecting to other people, and I do think having your people is really important yeah. because just so you don't start gaslighting yourself like when you're like it, you know because mm-hmm. we you know in real research it's never perfect anyway so you always have to make some kind of like just concessions to the realities the practical realities and so and that was kind of how in the old days how people ended up doing a lot of p-hacking and other stuff was it, it was sort of like well real data is messy nothing ever works out exactly as you think it would p-values are kind of stupid anyway so we'll just you know kind of mess around a little bit um, and so you want other people that you can go to and say like is this just like a normal thing to like fudge or is this actually going to be a problem is this going to undermine my work and so having those other people, and so so if your advisor isn't sort of savvy about open science, they'll be like, yeah, go ahead, budget. And so having those people that you can sort of be like, hey, get, can I have my reality check? So I think that's one. And then in terms of actual implementation, just doing what you can. I think some people feel like if they embrace open science, quote unquote, they're supposed to do everything. They're supposed to like, you know, uh, um, you know, publish their data in the New York Times, and you know, like you know, pre-register everything they're going to do for the rest of their career and, you know, just do, like, the maximal version. It's like, do do what, one, you know, if you're in a setting where you don't have full control over your work, do what the people you're collaborating with will let you do, but also do what you have been able to kind of learn enough about to feel like you can do and don't feel like you have to do everything at once. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the resistance points almost that the so the PI for example can have that assumption that if you want to do one of these things to slightly improve practice then that means that you also have to share everything and do and like it becomes this huge list of well we just don't have the resources at the time or whatever so I think sharing code is something that's really easy to do and especially because like you just get a github and your, your advisor's like, what's a GitHub? And you're like, never mind, I'm just going to put my data or my code on there. So you just put code. It's, I think it's less threatening to people who like feel territorial about data. Um, it's, a, it's a way, and it's a, it's a good practice because sharing your code makes you write better code. And so it's, you know, that's a, I think that's a pretty easy step a lot of people can start doing. Yeah. I wonder, is, um, do, do you guys have a a common or like a, a useful counter for the argument that we just don't have extra time for this. So like if, you, if you're really invested, you understand that a registered report is actually a good time saver because you've front-loaded so much of the work. But I think, yeah. if, unless you're really, you've read a lot about this. One argument I've heard and I think it's true is that, uh, that it is more time the first few times you do, like share your data or share your code or things like that. Like getting a GitHub, I don't even know what that means, but like I imagine <laughs> there's a startup cost, but once you've done it, then the future times it'll be relatively fast. So it's not as much of a time sacrifice as it seems, it's just that yeah. the first time or the first couple of times it is. The other thing though is that I think even if it turns out that this does slow things down, it's just not optional. Like I think that's my best counter argument and it's part of why I think we don't just want to sell people on the practical and like self-interested reasons to do this, but the, the philosophy behind it and like what you're sacrificing if you don't do this is like it's not really science anymore. So I do think like a lot of the things I would like to see change would slow people down and would it would make certain questions just not even worth studying anymore if you know 
and I think we just have to accept that yes, those might be some costs and some side effects, but they're worth it if that's what it takes to make sure what we're doing is science. Like it's a genuine maybe mis mistake that I think people make in terms of I have a hypothesis and it's like yeah you have this really vague idea about what you're going to do but trying to then convince people that if you don't write it down it's not actually a hypothesis anymore it's, or at the very least it's not a specific enough one to be able to yeah or a slightly more honest version is like I do I, my hypothesis is vague but I'm gonna let the data inform me and that's a virtue right like it's yeah. good to let the data speak to you and you don't want to be too like a priori about it because the data should be telling you what the truth is it's like Sure, which, if, which, then you, which if you frame good. it as hypothesis generation, if you frame yeah. it as like the data told me this, so now I need to go out and test it. It's like you want, it's, it's another case of wanting to have it both ways. Right. It's like you want the data to speak to you and tell you what's going on, and then you also want to say you had a hypothesis. Yeah. yeah. And then you just get both. Each one on its own is good, but you can't do both. So you've all been before, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, sort of have been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you know, been there, done that, like, why are you coming again? <laughs> why like, wouldn't we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I still don't know R. I think that's that's my answer. I need, today I'm going to go to the crash course in R. It's called a gentle crash course in R, so it better be. <laughs> gentle like, crash. That's yeah. like, yeah. I, I was like, what, how do those words like, work next to each other? It's, it's like yeah. when people have those things that are like, blah, 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 without tears, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I, wasn't, I don't, didn't think I was yeah. going to cry. <laughs> now I do. Now I am. But yeah, I guess there's like so much going on that there's always something you can learn. I mean, for me, since I don't know R, there's a lot I can learn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to the first question, like the question about like finding your people. Yeah. It's like nice yeah. to go to a place where all your people are there. Yeah. I mean, there, there's just so much. Yeah, there, there's so. I mean, to people that feel like I don't know everything, I'm overwhelmed. Like I don't think any of us feel like we know. Oh, like Sabine I'm, doesn't know all. I'm on the program I, committee know, and I don't know what half of the sessions are about. And <laughs> like sometimes a session, like I don't even know what a word in the title of the session is. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't. Yeah. 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 It's a great chance to learn. Like I'm teaching research methods uh, for the first time this upcoming year, like undergraduate research methods. So there's a session on teaching, on incorporating yeah. reproducibility into teaching, and so. I think I'm probably going to go to that because I'm really interested in finding out what other people's ideas are. And so yeah, so I think there's always going to be stuff to, and to work on and do. The social part of it is like finding your people. One thing I was thinking about earlier when we were chatting, I think before we were recording, is I think there's this perception that like those of us who are active on Twitter and have a podcast and stuff, like we say everything we think and we get stuff off our chest, but I don't say most things I really think on any of these public media. <laughs> I have like I have like G chat and texting and like other I have like different DM type things with different people. That that's where I vent what I really think and or in person conversations at SIPS. So even though it might seem like I say everything that goes through my head, for me there's still a lot I need to get out. One of the things like so we we talk about finding your own people, but then what the ethos of SIPS seems to me is that it's not just about being this kind of insular group of people that just all agree that everything outside needs to be approved and this is how we're going to do it. It's kind of you're really trying to incorporate ideas from outside to figure out how to both convince people and how to innovate. Just that. Not yeah. just patting each other on the back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not just There's a lot of a disagreement within the people who come it's to sit. Amazing. That's yeah. so good. <laughs> Which is, yeah, it's this funny thing that like, I mean, it, it's it's a classic finding in social psychology that might even replicate yeah. that like, <laughs> outgroup homogeneity effect yeah. that like people, people think, oh, 
those open science people, they're all the same. But it's like, no, people, yeah, people disagree. People have serious, I mean, serious scholarly disagreements. And, and that's, that's like, of course they do. Like, that's nor You got a bunch of academics in a room, of course we disagree. Like, that, <laughs> that never not happens, you know. Yeah. Uh, Good, it'd be boring otherwise, right? Yeah. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just 250 people in a room. It's like, like, so, so we all agree on this, guys? Like, yes. Okay, uh, <laughs> no, no, but like, like, really, like, like I've been excited for this since like February. But yeah. like the one thing that I was a bit worried about is that like this possibility that everyone is just going to be like, yeah, like we all agree, <laughs> like want to do stuff, but like we yeah. basically all agree, which yeah. is I don't know, it's like like a political party or something where yeah, you're just yeah. like all all on the same level. But that's that's not the case. That's not the case. And I, I think it's I mean, another so slightly <laughs> different variation on people. Not a, this isn't exactly like classic disagreement, but. Having just having different perspectives and people from you know people who use different methods, people from different subfields, people who work with different populations, um, and we you know we've been trying to really make SIPs diverse, and I think we have a you know it's going to be an ongoing thing. To try. Well, those were really interesting recordings, guys. Well done. I feel even worse not being at SIPs, um, but I'll definitely next year. Yes, to Rotterdam. To Rotterdam, so yes. there's no excuse for us Europeans not to turn up in the Netherlands. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Wait, you, you guys won't be Europeans anymore then? Well, I mean, as in... Uh, well, thanks, thanks. Just, just dig that so, in deeper to finish. Not, let's not talk about this now. No. This is a whole new podcast. Um, but, yeah, I hope that everybody found this very interesting and that even though people weren't as steps like me that they can learn a bit and be inspired and I don't know just feel like there is a whole community of people interested in open science yeah as yep. everyone kept saying it's it's um it's sort of a place where you can find your people yep. and we'll put in the show notes all of the materials that are shared openly from all of the workshops and hackathons too thanks for listening bye <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.